Up until the late 1990s, the internet was somewhat uncharted territory for many people. The landscape was very different back then. Twitter, Facebook, and even MySpace were things that had not been invented yet. Social media simply didn't exist the way that it does today, and what modes of communication did exist took a small amount of technical knowledge. Private email groups and local BBS message boards were still the primary mode of communication by the time a service known as Usenet began to gain popularity. These news groups made it simple for the public to create an alias and post a public discussion, not unlike a primitive, stripped-down version of Reddit. And much like the early days of Reddit, topical groups available through the service ranged from the ordinary to shocking levels of depravity. There were no videos, GIFs, or emojis as we see today as part of chat apps. This archaic online world was all ASCII and imagination, but for someone like Sharon Lopatka, the online world was one of adventure and excitement, a world that she believed would fulfill all of her deepest desires and one that ultimately lead her down a path of darkness. Our story begins in 1996. Do you dare enter the land of the giantesses where men are crushed like bugs Cities and towns are destroyed in seconds by these angry, yet gorgeous giant goddesses. They are in control, and destroy everything in their path. Never has a film been made before, to show the extremes that these giant women will go to, to crush and control. You can now own your copy of this incredible 60-minute video to view privately in the comfort of your own home. All orders are sent in a plain brown envelope with shipping label to protect your privacy. Send $30 plus $3 shipping cash, check or money order to Nancy Carlson Productions. Love, Nancy. Between May 15th and October 1st, 1996, a new user emerged on various alt.sex groups. Do you dare enter the land of the frozen, where women who have been abducted to this fortress are turned into mannequin dolls, marble statues and chrome like wind-up toys, where they can only turn back into the world of the living and breathing? If it is the will of the evil man who holds the key. See what this evil man's true intentions are, and why he has created this special army of still women, frozen into stone like silence. Hi, my name is Nancy. I made this film for you, because those who love this subject have been neglected by Hollywood for so many years. Unlike other films out there, this is not a shoddy basement production. I use talented actors and actresses, nice locations, and the most modern filming videography techniques to create this one-of-a-kind film. You can now own your copy of this incredible quality, made 120-minute video, to view privately in the comfort of your own home. All orders are sent in a plain brown envelope with shipping label to protect your privacy. Nancy Carlson Productions, please allow two weeks for check processing. Ask about my custom-made films of your fantasy. Prices start at $100 for 30-minute video on VHS. I'll make what you want to see. With a few clacks of the keys, Nancy Carlson, an independent producer of niche pornographic content, was born. Within the span of several months, Nancy had made a name for herself in different fetish groups, and those who frequented these groups were all too eager to hand over their money in exchange for these rare VHS tapes Nancy had advertised. It was the early days of e-commerce, and there were no online auction sites where Nancy could sell these tapes. This was also in the days before PayPal, so transacting on the internet was more difficult for independent merchants. If someone wished to purchase something online, then they would have to send cash, check, or money order through the postal service and wait several weeks for the item to be shipped. 
with buyer protection unheard of, scams were rampant. But users were good about self-policing, and the groups Nancy Carlson frequently promoted her videos on were no exception. After several users sent money to the address listed on Nancy's posts and received nothing in return, rumors about Nancy Carlson Productions began to circulate. As early as August of 1996, just a few months after Sharon Lopatka began writing advertisements under the name Nancy Carlson, a user by the name of Anthony took to a fetish forum to warn other users about the potential scam. Don't order the Nancy Carlson giantess video. Whoever he or she is, is just scamming people. I made the mistake of sending money and received nothing. Hopefully none of you made the same mistake. Brian, another user of the news group, responded with similar concerns. Yep, I sent her money too. I became suspicious when I went to the Fat Admirers news group and saw a vid she was selling of how she gained a huge amount of weight in a small period of time and captured it on film. This person is catering to everybody's fetishes. Now it's a bit too early to jump the gun here yet. She said she mailed me out my vid last Monday. I haven't gotten it yet, but I'll become real suspicious if I don't receive anything by Wednesday. She has emailed me back, but lately hasn't been. The evidence of a scam is there, but we shall have to see. If it is a scam, it will be my first one on the net. Does anyone know what the next step is, if this does turn out to be a scam? If I do receive the vid, I will post to this group clarifying the matter. I know there are a lot of giantess lovers out there who would fall real easy for her ad, myself included. I'm just going to have to wait and see. Take care. A third user by the name of Grover would also step into the conversation and attempt to calm the fears of the other users before they started sharpening their pitchforks. If and when you do receive it, do please post as to whether you got it. If you sent her an out-of-state check, it will take at least a week to clear. Also, her post didn't come out until the 2nd of August for the giantess video. And in the weight gain video, she did say that her boyfriend is a video cameraman, implying that he does all kinds of stuff. She also has a foot fetish tape. Don't jump the gun yet. Even if she wasn't completely honest with you about sending the product out Monday, all that means is that she's just human and will make an excuse under pressure just like the rest of us. Can you honestly say that you have never told a creditor that you sent the check out yesterday and then quietly slip it in the mail today? Legally, she doesn't have to get the video into your hands for 30 days from the time she receives your order. And if she sends you a note saying it will be longer, she can have another 30 days and give you the option for a refund if you don't want to wait. Any flames before the initial 30 days could be considered libel. And remember, she has your address. Don't worry, I don't think she'll sue you. I've worked in the mail order business, and I've never heard of a scam artist who personally answers mail. It's usually just form letters. I know for a fact that her replies to my mail are personal. Either that, or she should be making millions selling the most incredible autoresponder software ever created. It's also unlikely that she would take personal checks, since they are easily traced in the case of fraud. I also know people who do have a product, but don't get all of their orders filled on time because they are either irresponsible procrastinators or have simply bitten off more than they could chew all at once. It's a lot of work to run a part-time business, especially if you have a day gig during the week and still do all of the household chores. Remember the Raphael videos with pear-shaped dimensions model Brie? They had fulfillment problems too, and I have some of their tapes. You can still see ads for them on the Amazon Arena BBS. I know that once you get hooked on the net, with all of its aspects of instant gratification, it gets difficult to go back to waiting for the duration stuff takes in the real world of snail mail. But on the other hand, 
it's probably still faster than downloading a 60-minute video, even if you did have the 50-terabyte disk drive to hold it all. So until we have molecular transport courtesy of Chafe O'Brien, we'll just have to live with the wait. In any event, be patient. There will be plenty of time to flame and prosecute later. If you do receive the product, I hope you're as quick to post a review, whether or not the video is any good. The fact that you got it means that it isn't a scam. The quality is another matter which I'm sure would be of great interest to our friends. Relax, I don't think that she's a scam artist. I know that I would be more disappointed to find out that the video didn't really exist than I would to realize that I'd been ripped off for 33 bucks. Let us know what happens. Warm regards. I want to pause here to add some clarity and background to this post. Some of our listeners may be too young to remember the early days of the internet, so I feel it's important to stress how primitive everything was online by comparison to today. The average home computer came equipped with a 33.6K modem, which connected through the telephone lines. This made download rates incredibly slow, and it could take as long as a half an hour just to download a single JPEG image while users would later find ways to transfer files through Usenet groups. Even for those lucky enough to have a connection that could handle downloading such a large file, the average hard drive in a home computer could store no more than a few dozen megabytes of data. Compared to today's PCs, which tend to range from a few hundred gigabytes to several terabytes of storage space, compression has since reduced the size of video files, and high-speed connections have made it possible to stream video instantly through the internet. But at the time, it was much more practical to own physical copies of media, and much of the early days of e-commerce was selling rare, hard-to-find, or out-of-print audio and video. In spite of growing suspicions that Nancy Carlson was a scammer, Sharon continued to post in multiple fetish groups advertising her videos. One user was able to find that Sharon had posted 48 times under her Nancy Carlson alias, advertising other niche fetish videos, including women being hypnotized, women who were rendered unconscious, and another in which Sharon, posing as Nancy, claimed she would document her weight gain, growing from roughly 250 pounds to 450 pounds in a short period of time. Sharon diversified her ads, posting to more fetish forums than can possibly be tracked down in 2023. Sharon also found other ways to make money through Usenet groups, aside from selling videos including this advertisement she posted to the group Alt.PantyHouse. Hi, my name is Nancy. I'm 25, have blonde hair, green eyes, am 5'6", and weigh 121 pounds. Is anyone out there interested in buying my worn pantyhose or panties? This is not a joke or a wacky internet scam. I am very serious about this. I live in the U.S., but I can ship them anywhere in the world. Under her maiden name, Sharon Denberg, some of her other ventures included crafting newsletters and reviews for love potions sold by another one of her online personas, a mystic known as Velado Dion. In a post titled, Sex Spells Really Do Work, Sharon wrote, Velado will share his power with you to help you capture the heart of the one you desire. The Rakono power can also help you attain money, success, and your perfect soulmate. Email for more info. It's difficult to speculate on what could have driven Sharon to begin frequenting the sexually-oriented newsgroups. Prior to her Usenet scams, Sharon made several attempts to make money online. Her first venture included a home decorating guide, which she sold physical copies of through her own website. Other attempts to strike it rich included selling instructional guides for setting up 1-900 numbers, writing ad copy for a local newspaper, as well as a psychic hotline. 
It would have seemed that advertising hard to come by pornographic videos was just the latest in a long line of business schemes. Though there is no evidence to suggest that Sharon ever produced the videos she advertised, it would later become clear that she had been living a very different life. Naked, in the glow of the computer screen. Listener, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, celebrates every effort you make to improve how you feel and how you live. Even a small step can make a big difference. If you've been working on your mental health, or if you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. At Talkspace.com, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And Talkspace is affordable and in-network with most insurers. To celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and to celebrate every step you take towards a better, richer, fuller life. Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast $100 off your first month with Talkspace. Just go to Talkspace.com disaster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com disaster to get $100 off of your first month and to show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com disaster. And what had been uncovered of Sharon's posting history and scam attempts were only the tip of this black iceberg. Sharon's dark fantasies began to manifest online under yet another alias. She dangled her legs over an abyss. Soon she'd be swallowed whole. On August 22, 1996, a user calling themselves Gina108 wrote in the group alt.sex.necrophilia, Want to talk about torturing to death? Hi, my name is Gina. I was wondering if anyone out there would want to talk about the subject mentioned above with me. I kind of have a fascination with torturing till death. Of course I can't speak about it with my friends or family. Would love to have an email exchange with someone. If you're interested, email me. I hope you all don't think I'm strange or anything. I just want to talk about it. A man named Mark would respond to the post, writing, Hi Gina. Of course we all have our fantasies. Would like to share mine with you. One of which is to torture a naked woman to death. Would you like to hear about it? These posts did not go unnoticed by other users of the close-knit groups. If you posted fantasy talk that included anything unsafe or non-consensual or criminal, you would get dogpiled pretty quick if there was no disclaimer about how that behavior was not condoned in real life and was just fantasy. Lisa Delano, another frequent user of these groups, recalled in an interview with Colonel Magazine. Delano claimed she had reached out to Sharon, concerned that she may attempt to make her dark fantasies into a reality. Though Sharon admitted that she had been suffering from a depressive episode, Delano recalled that she did not see any reason to be concerned about a bored housewife living out extreme fantasies in a safe, online environment and did not see the need to connect her to a mental health professional. There were even fewer signs Sharon may have been contemplating her own death in the real world. Those who were closest to her recalled that she was a pretty normal person and never said anything to anyone suggesting she may have been harboring some deeply troubling thoughts, though friends did recall she was a bit of a loner with a rebellious streak. She was a little more hippie than everybody else, a little freer. She didn't have a lot of friends, and if she thought you would be friends with her, she'd leech onto you. 
but most of the time, she was alone. A former high school classmate would recall in an interview with the Charlotte Observer, it was around this same time that Sharon would meet like-minded individuals through IRC chat. Individuals who claimed they were more than willing to sexually torture and murder Sharon. In the months leading up to her death, Sharon would travel to New Jersey to meet one such individual. When the man realized that Sharon was serious about wanting to be tortured to death, he backed out of the deal. Sharon would return to her Hampstead, Maryland home disappointed that things did not go as planned during her New Jersey trip, but she had no intention on giving up. Also during this time, Sharon had been regularly emailing another man calling himself Slowhand. The full transcripts of these emails have never been released to the public, but police would later claim they recovered what amounted to a 900-page novel worth of emails exchanged between Sharon and Slowhand, detailing her desire to be tied up, tortured, and slayed for sexual gratification, and Slowhand's willingness to participate in such a bizarre request. As Nancy Carlson continued to be exposed as a scammer across different Usenet groups, Sharon secretly made plans to meet with Slowhand. On October 13, 1996, Sharon Lopatka told her husband she was going to visit with friends in Georgia and headed to Penn Station where she would board a train bound for Charlotte, North Carolina, with no plans of ever returning. A short note was later found by Victor Lopatka, Sharon's husband. It read, If my body is never retrieved, don't worry. Know that I am at peace. This note would prompt Victor to alert authorities, and it wouldn't take long for police to recover the prolific number of emails exchanged between Sharon and Slowhand detailing their plans. Detectives were able to trace the Slowhand account back to a man identified as Robert Frederick Glass. Like Sharon, Robert appeared to live a fairly typical life. Several months before he began exchanging emails with Sharon, Robert's wife had left him and decided to take the couple's three children along with her. Robert lived alone in his rural North Carolina trailer, located 80 miles outside of Charlotte. By day, he worked as a computer programmer. By night, he could be found naked in front of the computer screen, frequenting BDSM chat rooms. Police would spend several days keeping Robert under heavy surveillance. They watched as the 45-year-old programmer carried on life as usual, going to work every morning and returning home each night, while Sharon's body sat in a shallow grave no more than 75 feet from his front door. After obtaining a search warrant, police found some of Sharon's possessions inside of Robert's trailer, as well as pornographic magazines, bondage gear, drug paraphernalia, a gun, and the most important piece of evidence of all, Robert's computer. Robert confessed to police that Sharon had died while the pair were engaged in rough sex, but insisted that it was an accident, telling police during an interview, I don't know how much I pulled the rope. I never wanted to kill her, but she ended up dead. According to Robert, he and Sharon met up at the train station before making the 80-mile trek to his trailer. There, he and Sharon spent several days together before her death. It was while the couple were having sex that Sharon slipped a rope around her neck. Sharon and Robert both proceeded to tug on the rope until she stopped breathing. In a panic, Robert took Sharon's body and buried her in his yard. Meanwhile, online, there were heated debates throughout the news groups on the legal and ethical implications of arranging one's own murder. Some felt that Robert Glass was not a murderer and was no more immoral in killing Sharon than Dr. Kevorkian was in assisting the terminally ill in taking their own lives. 
Others expressed feelings that they had failed as a community to adequately promote the safety and well-being of all of their users, and thought they should have done more to prevent such a terrible tragedy. Robert refused to acknowledge that he had willingly assisted Sharon Lopatka in taking her own life. He maintained that her death was a horrible accident. Sharon's autopsy report would support Robert's claims. There were no signs of a struggle or anything to suggest that Sharon had not been a willing participant in the sexual acts that led to her death. Those who knew Robert Glass, including his estranged wife, were shocked to learn that the quiet and gentle computer programmer could be capable of committing such a bizarre act. However, Robert's estranged wife would admit during an interview with the Washington Post that part of the reason for her leaving was Robert's obsession with chatting online and some of the discussion topics she found in his saved chat logs. I have been confused by this. He's such a nice, gentle person. If he did do it, I really can't see him doing something like that, killing someone or meaning to, even after all I read. But there's this other side to him, a side of him I didn't know. Sharon's husband, Victor, did not believe his wife would willingly participate in the violent sex acts described by Robert, however, would tell reporters days before Robert's trial that he just wants to end it. In addition to Sharon's husband refuting evidence to support that Sharon had arranged her own murder, Sharon's family also issued a statement to be read before the judge. Robert Glass did not care. He took advantage of her situation. He could have walked away. He debased not only her, but her body after she was dead. Three years after police placed Robert under arrest, he would finally see his day in court. The prosecutor dropped the original first-degree murder charge. Believing that the jury would find the email and chat transcripts difficult to follow, and settled on a manslaughter charge in exchange for a guilty plea. In addition to charges stemming from Sharon's death, police found child pornography stored on disks near Robert's computer, and he faced separate charges in connection to the files. Robert Glass agreed to the judge's order to serve 27 months in federal prison for possessing pornography depicting minors having sex, with time served for the three years he spent in jail awaiting trial. As for the voluntary manslaughter charge in connection to Sharon Lopatka's death, Robert was ordered to serve four years and five months in prison, with an additional five years of probation, and ordered to pay $5,526 in restitution to the Lopatka family. By all accounts, Sharon Lopatka lived a normal life in a suburban Maryland cul-de-sac. Friends reported that she and Victor were happily married, with Victor being a welcome face around the neighborhood. No one saw any signs that Sharon may have been suffering. The questions that linger all these years later are why she did it, and why Robert Glass was willing to participate. Unfortunately, we can only speculate the answers to those questions. On March 3rd, 2002, just two weeks before Robert Glass was set to be released from prison, he died of a heart attack, taking the secrets he and Sharon shared between them to the grave. Google acquired Usenet in 2002 and preserved much of the original content. For those who can work up the nerve, Sharon's posts remain searchable even today. And thus ends the tale of Sharon Lopatka, a story of dark obsession that ended with our subject willingly swallowed by the abyss she had become so enamored with. The murky corners of the internet at times can feel like a private disaster lying in wait for the lost, the misguided, the lonely. I ask you, listener, was Robert Frederick Glass a killer? 
or did he simply guide a wayward soul to the destination she so desperately craved? I'll leave that for you to decide. For now, just know that we will go back to more typical episodes of Disaster after this episode. These two internet-based episodes I feel didn't quite fit in Obscura or Disaster, but I hope you found value in them.